This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making this program possible. Tonight's special guest will bring us back to the topic of close encounters and alien abduction. Our guest is Kim Carlsberg, and she will share her own personal story of visitation, abduction, and even the pregnancy and removal of more than one child and the face-to-face encounter of what seemed to be her clone daughter. Kim Carlsberg will be with us shortly. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our interviews, hundreds of hours of CD audio quality material, subscribe by going to VeritasRadio.com. In just seconds after you subscribe, you'll receive your login and will have immediate access to all of our material. That way, you can take Veritas with you wherever you go. Subscribe today. And the holidays are upon us. It's never too late to give the gift of truth. Make a long-lasting difference in someone's life. Give them a Veritas subscription. You can choose between three, six, nine months, or one or two years. And we're also waiting for a new order of our futuristic metal-cased 8GB USB drives with seasons 1, 2, and coming in January, Season 3. And I'll never get tired of recommending MMS. Why? Because I know it works, and it's also very inexpensive 
Operati can do. You know why I can't talk too much about it, but those who have tried it know best. Go to the Veritas store for more information about all of our products. And coming very soon, the Veritas transcript series in book format. We'll start with the first 11 shows. There goes that number 11 once again, and it's almost 400 pages. That's volume one. I'm currently working with the publisher, but you can expect it in the first quarter of 2012. Eventually, we'll have several volumes available. And for those of you who cannot afford a Veritas subscription, we've donated a lot in the past uh, week or two. You can still get a free subscription if you are ready, willing, and able to transcribe a show within seven days. So go to the free subscription link of our website, veritasradio.com, for instructions, and we'll assign an interview to you. This is another way where you don't have to pay in order to receive a subscription. And here's your last reminder. If you want to submit your question for the upcoming Inside Veritas 2011 Special Edition program, the deadline is this Sunday, December the 18th. After that, I will no longer accept questions. This special will be on Friday, December 23rd. Just go to the members section for instructions. So far, I have received great questions and I look forward to spending that Christmas weekend with you. For those of you who are alone, I have nowhere to go. You know that you will not be alone. I will be right there with you, keeping you company. And if you want to get in touch with me, just go to VeritasRadio.com and click on the contact button. The story you're about to hear does not include third parties telling someone else's account. This is a true story of close encounters and alien abduction. Imagine yourself a healthy and successful young adult with a bright future ahead of you. All of a sudden, your entire world collapses in front of you. Your career, your relationships, your life takes a turn unlike anything you ever imagined. From watching lights in the sky to becoming a proverbial lab rat and enduring the most gruesome physical and psychological torture any human being could possibly endure. Imagine becoming pregnant without your knowledge and the removal of your fetus, your own clone, an alien hybrid. What are their plans with these children? Are they simply studying us as we would any animal? Or is there a more sinister plan for the future? Who do you turn to when your life collapses in front of you and no one around you seem to understand? Who do you talk to when you meet your own daughter years later for the first time? For the true story and much more, Kim Carlsberg is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere.
is Whitley Strieber, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Kim Carlsberg is a UFO researcher, international keynote speaker, and three-time author on the ET UFO phenomenon. A contactee herself, Kim's first book, Beyond My Wildest Dreams, Diary of a UFO Abductee, chronicled eight years of continuous contact with seven different species of ETs and was published nearly two decades ago. Considered a milestone in contact literature at the time, her life story was optioned by TriStar Pictures. Kim is a graduate of the Arts Center College of Design, Pasadena, California, in commercial photography. Kim's career as an advertising and portrait photographer has covered all aspects of the entertainment and music industries. She has been commissioned to photograph the most noted celebrities in private sittings, from rock stars to presidents. Her work has appeared in hundreds of publications worldwide, including Rolling Stone, TV Guide, and Time, and her five-year stretch as the exclusive photographer on the TV series Baywatch brought her the honor of being the first woman accepted into the Hollywood Camera Union. Kim's new book, The Art of Close Encounters, has been coined the quintessential cosmic coffee table book. It is a favorite in the UFO community, with endorsements from George Norrie, Dr. Leo Sprinkle, Stephen Bassett, and many others. Kim's newest venture in Sedona, Arizona, Sedona UFO Sky Tours, takes skywatchers to UFO hotspots with the most powerful night vision equipment available. UFOs are spotted every time out, and sometimes up to 100 craft have been seen at once. And to learn more about Kim and her work, visit theartofcloseencounters.com and sedonaufoskytours.com. And directly from the very special and mystical city, Sedona, Arizona, I would like to welcome Kim Carlsberg to Veritas. Hello, Kim, and welcome. How are you? I'm great, Mel. It's so wonderful to be with you finally. I am honored. It's uh, it's been a long time. We've been trying to go back and forth, and our schedules finally were nice enough to each other that we have you here. So I'm glad to have you on. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here. We try. We've been trying for a year now. I think. <laughs> I know. I know. And uh, we we've been in touch uh, with each other for I believe over two years now. Even before we we contemplated doing an interview, this is before you you wrote your last book. Which, by the way, it is. Truly, the quintessential coffee table book. This is the book that I have on my coffee table in my office. And every time somebody comes in, they just they just love it. I mean, not only because it's beautiful, the art is just beautiful the way it is, but the content, you have so much content there. But before we talk about all the books and, and everything you've done, yeah. I'd like to know more about your background. Some of the people around the world who may not know who Kim Carlsberg is, tell us some of your background and then we can talk about do you experience this as an abductee, experiencer, contactee? Sure. Um, well, you did a, a beautiful intro for me. Um, basically, um, I'm a girl from the Midwest. I came, you know, I grew up in the Bible Belt. Um, nothing spectacular about my life whatsoever, just a, a genuine Midwestern girl. Um, I did have uh, a bit of talent as far as illustration was concerned. And I was offered a uh, scholarship to the Art Center, um, not the Art Center, excuse me. It's been so many years I forget. Well, the Art Center in Kansas City. And um, But I had had enough of uh, you know the cold winters in the Midwest. So I tell people when I reached a skate velocity, velocity at 18, mm-hmm. I made my way to California to uh, work on my tan for a while. 
and then ended up going to Santa Monica College for a few years. And I eventually was accepted into the Art Center College of Design, as you said before. I was one of the first women, uh, I believe uh, may, there may have been another woman in my department, but our classes didn't line up. So I was typically the only woman in my class. Um, it was very challenging and, and uh, very creative and, and wonderful for me. I graduated and went on to uh, work on Baywatch, actually. That's a huge story in my life. That's one of the, that's where my abductions began. But um, I, like I said, like you said, I was the first woman um, in the cameraman's union. And I was living the life of Riley. I uh, had a, a wonderful boyfriend who was a lifeguard at the time. Um, our relationship lasted five years, which was a long time considering, you know, I was introduced to the abduction phenomenon. Um, we were living on the beach in Malibu. I was doing freelance photography, different types of jobs, you know, all over Hollywood. Uh, he was working as a lifeguard, and, and he was doing the Olympics films. Um, he worked for the Olympic Committee for many, many years, and he had a dream of doing a lifeguard series. Well, in the time we were together, um, that dream came true. We were in the midst of putting together a synopsis for the television series. Um, it was not in production yet, but um, it was on its way. I had worked in Hollywood one day. It was a. It was really late. You know, Hollywood is grueling. You know, the the hours are long. The work is tough, especially when you're a woman trying to compete in the man's world. Mm -hmm. So um, I had worked until it was past midnight. On, I believe I was working on, um, was it Pee Wee Herman Big Top? <laughs> mm -hmm. And I came home. Uh, I We lived on the corner of Santa, uh, it was, um, Sunset Boulevard and Pacific Coast Highway. Nice. And it's this old, uh, ancient stone building that's actually on the historic record that has this you know, phenomenal uh, view of the entire Santa Monica Bay. So this particular night, um, I came home. I was very quiet because Greg was always in bed early because he was an Olympian and he worked out at five in the morning. I came home. I looked out, uh, you know, over the ocean. I tried to get a few minutes of enjoying the view. And I noticed this strange light hanging on the horizon that was too low to be a star. It was too high to be a boat. And I had seen that ocean a, a million times and I knew something was odd. So I, I remained looking at this light. It jetted across the entire Santa Monica Bay in a heartbeat. And I knew that I was seeing something out of this world. And I knew I couldn't, I didn't have time to wake up my boyfriend because at the rate it moved, it would be gone when I got back. <clears throat> so I just remained looking at this light. The next thing I know, it jetted across the bay and it hung 30 feet in front of my house. It was hanging over the beach. Um, 50 feet in diameter. It was a white light, and I called it in my first book. I called it the Moon Over Malibu. Yeah. I don't know if I had any missing time at that point, but that was my first sighting. And people always ask me, you know, well, were you into these things? Had you heard anything about this before that? And like I said, I was a Midwestern girl. I came to Hollywood. I worked three jobs, and I worked my way through eight years of college. I did not go to movies. I did not watch TV. I had never heard of alien abduction. I had never heard of the Greys. So we're talking 1988. Okay. So there wasn't a lot out there at that time. Mm -hmm. So two weeks later, I just, you know, I, this thing just 
jetted off into the stars, disappeared, and I sit there, you know, dumbfounded, thinking, well, okay, that was just another life experience. I'll just go to bed and go on with my life. But that wasn't the case. Um, two weeks later, I came home late once again. I went to bed, went to sleep. I woke up. I was not in my bed. I was in what I thought was an elevator. I was naked and I was paralyzed. My nose was pressed against a, a cold silver door that looked just like an elevator. I was in this quote-unquote elevator with other beings. I could feel them. I could sense them. I could hear their thoughts. I was getting telepathy for the first time. I couldn't move my head, but um, I was just, I could move my eyes. So I, I twisted my eyes to the left and I saw my old boyfriend who was um, naked and paralyzed and he was uh, dazed, dazed and confused. I was conscious. I knew, uh, you know, my wits were about me, but he was almost comatose. And there was another woman standing next to him. She had dark hair. Uh, I I don't, did, couldn't see her, but I knew she had dark hair. I knew she was a makeup artist, which made sense because my old boyfriend, David, was a photographer, and I was a photographer, and we work with makeup artists all the time. So the next thing I know, I'm pushed from behind. The elevator door opens, and I'm pushed into a huge room, and this room is lined with little operating tables that were only a couple of feet high off the ground. Hundreds of these tables were filled with unconscious humans, and there were these, I coined them, the, um, oh God, the anorexic Pillsbury Doughboys. <laughs> the grays? The grays. They were the, tiny, the three and a half foot grays, little, they were, you know, tiny, big heads, big eyes. Everybody knows what a gray is then. I had never heard or seen of a gray, so that was my description. Um, they were experimenting on the humans. Like I said, all the humans were unconscious. Um, you know, when you wake up into this kind of scenario, it's absolutely terrifying. So I didn't know what to do but to scream. <laughs> were, you, were you the only one who was awake? I was the only one who was conscious of what was going on. Uh, like I said, my boyfriend was awake, but he was com he was like paralyzed, standing up, comatose. His eyes were glazed over. Mm. And um, th the next thing I know, there are four beings to my right. Two were taller grays. They ran up to me when I started screaming. One stood in front of me, and you, now people know when the grays lock onto your eyes, they have total control. And this this being, I'm I'm five five, so this being is just a little bit shorter than me with these huge black eyes, and came within a couple of inches of my face and just stood there. And the next thing I know, I feel the sharp pain on the back of my neck, and the other tall gray had stuck something in the back of my neck, and I felt myself going unconscious. It was a drug. Um, it was anesthesia, similar to anesthesia because I've had operations, I've had surgeries, and I knew that feeling. And it was it was one of the most terrifying moments of my life. I thought I was going to be dead. That's incredible. And you were standing up at this point? Standing up, yes. Okay. And what happened after? Can you recollect? what? For, I just think, for example, of you probably know Jim Sparks. I do know Jim, not real well. I only know a few people in this world in the in the in the in the circuit that have recollection the way you and Jim have. What happened then? The next thing I know, I wake up and I'm in a smaller room. I'm it's like it reminded me of a cave and I'm sitting on a metal table. Now I'm sitting up and I come into consciousness, you know, like you do when you come out of anesthesia. 
And I noticed that I'm alone in this room with one of these little gray characters. They were actually not gray. They were off-white. Um, and I could tell, like I said, I was I was locking into this telepathy because they are telepathic, come to find out later. But um, I, I was seeing that it was waiting for some kind of communication. And at that time, um, a, another being came into the doorway. There was this, this little doorway and the room outside the doorway was really brightly lit. And the room I'm in is dark. So when this being came into the doorway, it was backlit. And the first thing I thought was, oh my God, this being is dying from cancer because it had had patchy blonde hair, you know, just patches all over, stringy, like someone who is going through uh, radiation chemo. treatment. Yeah, right. chemo. Yeah. So uh, the next thing I noticed is it had a female energy. It was wearing a white, like, canvas gown with no description all the way to the ground, um, but I knew energetically it was female. So I started, scre- you know, screaming out to it, saying, you know, you're a female. Um, c- can't you see how terrified I am? Why don't you help me? Can't you help me? And she came back with this completely apathetic, rude telepathic response stop being such a big baby and this will be over with soon enough this is telepathically telepathically yes and you know at that point i realized they had they did not have the same sense of emotion and compassion that we do on the surface later on in life i found out that that's not true um they do have a very deep emotion, but I believe they keep it masked um, when they're dealing with us. Almost as if they're... During the the preparation for this interview, I wrote something because you mentioned in the description of the Satas, commonly known as the Graves, that they have been described as clinical, cold, mechanical, and loving. Yes. Now, that last word, loving, doesn't seem to fit next to cold and mechanical. Can you explain? It doesn't fit, and it's because we try to fit everything into our box of human understanding, and they yes. are alien. They, they, it is not black and white and ten shades of gray. They go off the scale in both directions. And so later on in life, um, I'll, ju- I'll just wrap the beginning up here quickly. Uh, I was… Uh, oh, take your time. Take your time. This is a great story. Yeah. Um, so, But the next thing I knew, I had been rendered unconscious again, and I woke up in my bed. And my boyfriend, Greg, was in exactly the same spot and position he was in when I went to bed. And he didn't even stir. So I lay there on my back with my eyes wide open going, what has happened to my world? What is Was he the same person that was up there with you? Can we say up there or maybe down there at an underground base? No, no, no. He was my current boyfriend, Greg. Ah, okay. Greg and I, yeah, w- you know, did the Baywatch series together. This is another boyfriend. This was my first boyfriend. I see. And uh, his name was David, and um, he's actually been on a couple shows with me, so he has no problem uh, me mentioning his name. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I want to get back to the emotional part of the Grays. My my experiences are so long, Mel. You know, I've I've got a whole book in eight years, and I can't get it all in. But I I just want to hit the highlights for people who sure. don't know about this. Um, when I was put back, it was the beginning of eight years of constant um, being taken. So, and at the end of eight years, I learned how to make it stop, and I did. 
during those eight years, um, I wanted, I felt like I could make the abduction stop if I wanted to, but I didn't want to because I wanted to find out everything I could. You know, this was absolutely unbelievable that these kinds of things could be taking place, you know, to someone who is living on the beach in Malibu, working on the most successful series of all time. And I'm not saying any of this to blow my horn. I'm just saying these are the kinds of people that are, you know, everybody from, uh, you know, country people to, you know, celebrities. It's happening everywhere all over the world. And it's and there's a lid on it. How can that possibly be? Mm-hmm. But it is the case. So um, I went on and allowed the abductions to continue. Uh, as they continued, I became more and more conscious. I started communicating with them. I kept saying, you don't have to knock me out. Let me be conscious. I will cooperate. Let's do this on a, a you know a more humane level, if that's the right word. So eventually they, they agreed. But during the course of those eight years, I realized that the primary reason they were taking me was for my DNA. And they were, what they do, you know, common knowledge now, they take uh, female eggs, they take male sperm, they combine them in laboratories with their DNA, and they create hybridization, hybrid species. And I, at once, um, the most, I guess, traumatic experience of my life uh, was being implanted with an alien fetus. Now, in 1995, when I wrote my book, Beyond My Wildest Dreams, people didn't like that. Even the UFO community shunned me. Why? Because that was not common knowledge. So? So, and I, yeah, well, they didn't like it. Do you remember, there's the story, you know, in 1940, in the 1940s and 50s, it was okay to see a star, uh, a light in the sky, but yes. you couldn't talk about seeing a light on the ground. Well, 10 years later, you could talk about seeing a light on the ground, but you couldn't talk about the occupants. Then 10 years later, five years later, you could talk about the occupants, but you couldn't talk about what they were doing. So I was at that point. They were talking about the occupants, but they weren't up front. All truth is stranger than fiction. Sure. it takes time for them to to, to absorb it into the mainstream. And I have an illustration in my book of me strapped to a table with the aliens holding this fetus in a jar, talking to me, telling me they were going to put it into me. And they were discussing its gender, and I was just out of my mind. So here's one of the most important uh, aspects to my story. Um, while I was strapped to that table, there was a woman with dark hair over my left shoulder looking completely distraught and out of her mind, just like I was feeling, holding a red rose. Now, if that isn't a, an odd picture, yeah, that's in my book. Come to find out, I had four experiences in, in all of my conscious abductions, and I think I probably have, I don't know, 75 conscious abductions in my book, and I had enough material for another book, but one day I just threw it in the trash because I'd had enough. But I went to Yvonne Smith, you know Yvonne? Of course. And um, my God, she was so wonderful in, in helping me heal. Uh, I had, we did only four sessions for uh, bits and pieces that I could not consciously recall. One of those, that was one of the experiences with the woman holding the rose. Um, I was asked to speak at MUFON LA mm, a few months after I started going 
to Yvonne. Uh, I was going to be on a panel. I came in the room one night. Um, uh, Yvonne was in the back of the room. She ran up to me. There was a woman with her, and she said, don't leave after the meeting. There's someone I want you to meet. And I, I glanced over at this woman, and she was looking at me like she saw a ghost. And so I just went ahead, and I did my panel. And then afterwards, Yvonne ran up to me, and she goes, Kim, I want you to meet Kathleen. And Kathleen looked at me, and she said, it's nice to meet you, Kim, but I already know you. And so at that point, I've got, you know, goosebumps all over my body and I'm starting to shake because I, I had a feeling uh, what I was going to hear. And then Yvonne turned to me and she said, Kim, she goes, um, Kathleen started coming, coming to me not long after you did. And she told me the exact same story you told me from the other point of view. Kathleen was the one holding the rose and her abductions she's made to observe. And I turned around and I looked at her and I said, you're a makeup artist, right? She said, yeah. So that the woman in the elevator, makeup artist. There you go. This is so interesting because you had your Mm ex-boyfriend. What's the correlation? Why would... I'm just trying to understand if perhaps even before this happened, when you were dating him, if things were happening back then, because why would you be in the same room years after? Oh, I, oh, I absolutely agree with you. We were probably all taken while we were dating, while David and I were dating. Sure, it makes absolute sense. Uh, oh, and then I asked her if she knew David and I believe she said, I don't know David, but I know his brother quite well. <laughs> so, yeah. Um. So it's interconnected. And do you think that all these abductions mm-hmm. have been year after year because they were trying to perfect the hybridization until it happened? Absolutely. Um, so when I was implanted, um, now the thing is people, oh, the same questions. How did you, if you were implanted with an alien fetus, why didn't you know it? Um, here's how I didn't know it. I was always very, very athletic and very thin. Women of that weight stop having their cycles. So I didn't have my cycles for years on end. I was a vegan vegetarian, um, and that's anybody can look that up. Statistically, women stop having their cycles so that they and the alien fetus is very very tiny, so they can put it into your body and you you won't know it's there for months, and they can get away with it for months, and then they take you back, they take the fetus out, they bring it to full term in these these tanks, these liquid tanks, and many abductees report to being taken in these rooms with, you know, hundreds of maybe thousands of these tanks in these nurseries. Um, and they're told that these are their children. Sometimes it's pointed out that these are their children. I was brought back in. I was asked to breastfeed the children. I was brought back many, many times. I have relationships with my hybrid children. Um, they're children, plural. Children, plural. Huh. Um, specifically, the one I know the most is I named her April. And the last time I saw her, she was 13. And she was she was a clone, absolute clone of me. She was a little bit paler and a little bit thinner, but she looked exactly like I looked at 13. And she had uh, amazing telepathy. She was very emotional. She was just, you know, the grays have taken the best of, of 
each species and created these beautiful hybrid children. They're not children anymore. She would be, you know, I'd be a grandmother by this time. But um, so, yeah, I was taken down one of these hallways and I've seen every combination of human, alien, DNA, um, different the different species on our planet. I'm sorry, species, the different races on our planet. Before, you, before you go there, let me just interject for a second. Before you go there, I'm interested in knowing of the the quote-unquote pregnancy period. Yeah. How how old was the fetus when they inserted it into you and how old was the fetus when they uh, extracted? I have no idea. You know, they just, they held, they held a little tube up and it was, you know, the size of a, I don't know, a small mouse and they, I was strapped down and then they knocked me out and they put it in me and, and then, you know, I'm, they wipe your memory, mm-hmm. and then the next thing you know, uh, you wake up and and things are different. And then they, when they take it out, things are different. Um, here's an here's uh, an interesting story out of my first book, my, my you know my diary entry. Sure. Um, I told you I'd been asking them to let me be conscious, and so one night I was in my bed. I was living in Channel Islands. I had moved from Malibu because, of course, speaking out about alien abduction destroys your career and your mm. relationship and on and on. That's what happened? Absolutely. Um, There was a, I I believe I remember one moment when my boyfriend uh, was almost ready to accept what was happening happening to me. We were filming at Malibu High School and one of his best friends was the cameraman and, you know, he was directing the episode and I was the still photographer. So, the three of us are always bunched together. You know, the still still photographer has to be very close to, uh, you know, the main camera to get the right stills. So, I came in late that morning, I had had a, a, a grueling abduction, and he he knew it. He looked at me, goes, "It happened again last night, didn't it?" And I said, "Yes, it did." And it was really the first time he acknowledged it. And then he turned, and I saw there was just a, there was an opening for one moment. And then he turned around and he looked at his friend, who was the cameraman. And he said, "My girlfriend thinks she gets abducted by aliens. What mm. do you think about that?" And the guy turned around and he goes, she's been smoking too much pot and started right. laughing. You know, one of these comments. And and the, right then he shut down and never opened up again. But um, so, you know, that's that's the way it goes. What, what did they do to him so that he could keep quiet when you were being taken? Most people I talk to, abductees, um, if they are with someone that the greys don't want, they just they paralyze them, render them unconscious, and and you know they don't know anything's happened. So there's no after effect. It, well, it, it obviously occurs through the night because if they right. take you for two or three hours, then your mate is out for two or three hours. And when they were taking you, you mentioned at one point you were in a cave-looking location. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, were you taken to a spaceship or do you think you were taken somewhere on planet Earth, perhaps an underground facility? In, in that particular instance, I don't know. It, it had qualities of an underground base. It didn't have, I've been on many, many ships and it, they have their own quality. Um, 
you know, being a photographer, uh, having studios my whole life. This is a, another interesting story. I think I'm skipping around here, but I was I was a model when I was young, and that's how I got into photography because I used to see pictures of me, and I knew I didn't look that good, and I just said, "This is magic. I have to figure this out." Well, when I was going to Santa Monica College, we had a um, a professor who would take us out on every Friday on a field trip to a famous photographer's studio, and uh, Harry Langdon, old time Hollywood photographer was one, the guy on the roster that day. And I had this fantasy the night before because being a model, I had a portfolio and I thought, wouldn't it be great if just this one time they'd actually do a photo shoot and they would pick me and I'd have free pictures from Harry Langdon in my portfolio. Well, um, it turned out it happened exactly the way I fantasized it. We get there. Uh, he's got this beautiful, all photography studios that are, you know, top notch are coved. They have no straight lines. Everything is curved, right? So you have a cove. So the the floor curves into the walls. Mm -hmm. The walls curve into the ceilings. Okay. So everything is round and white. So there are no shadows. So it reflects the light perfectly. Well, I'm in this group of people. These are my peers. They're my classmates, maybe 30 of us. Harry Langdon is on a platform studio, uh, a platform in a studio. Uh, he's up maybe, I don't know, three feet above us, and, and he's speaking. And it, and we just when we're getting ready to leave, he said, you know what? I think I'd like to do a demonstration of a real photo shoot for you guys. And he goes, I've already chosen the girl, um, the little girl in white. Would you come up here, please? And I'm looking around. I'm the only one in white. Okay. I walk up on the stage. I turn around. I look out into this, you know, from this raised platform out into this curved room. And I pass out. So, somewhere in my this is what this is before my first conscious abduction. This is when I was just in junior college. Something in my subconscious recognized that curved room that terrified me so much that I passed out. So, many years later, here we are decades later, decade later, I go to Yvonne Smith, one of, one of those four uh, regressions. I realized that it was the duplicate, Harry Langdon Studio was the duplicate of an experience I had um, on board ship. And I, w- I went through that experience on board ship. I was on a platform strapped to a table naked with a tall gray behind me and I'm uh, my arm is uh, is falling off on the right of the table my head is falling off on the right of the table I'm drooling I have no control over my body I look out where my peers would have been and it's a classroom of gray aliens I was being used you were the proverbial yes. uh, frog in the biology class I absolutely was. I hate to to say it this way, but this is what you're depicting, more or less. Yes, that's what happened. So, there I was in junior college, um, prime t- prime of my life. I went home that day. It couldn't understand what ha- happened to me. No idea. And I wouldn't know for many, many years. But this is how this affects people's lives. And this is the reason I wrote my book, because people need help. I didn't leave my house for months. I quit school. I quit modeling. I tried to go back to school one day. And when 
when I was walking down the hallway and people would look at me, I would just be so terrified. I, my mouth would get dry. I'd get dizzy. I'd get sick to my stomach and I had to turn around and go home. So, so you became agoraphobic. I did. And is it because of the paranoia or that you thought they knew? No, I didn't know why. I just didn't want to be looked at. Mm. Now, looking back on it, doesn't that make total sense? Here you've got these beings with these huge black eyes that, you know, torture you and control you and stare into your eyes and control your mind through your optic nerve or however they do it. Uh, and it was that that room triggered my memories. So obviously I had been being abducted. I was only in my 20s. And I'm having that kind of a reaction to an experience that I don't remember. So I obviously had to have been being abducted probably since birth, certainly in my teens. So Did this happen to anybody in your family? No. No, I have had two brothers. I have one. And after 20 years of downloading him with information, he still doesn't believe it. But that's okay. And regarding your hybrid daughter. When did you find out about this? Well, I knew all along because, like I said, they were having me breastfeed and then they were bringing me back to play with the children and introducing me to my children. And, um, you know, the most profound experience with April was they took me aboard ship. They handed me this tiny little baby. Uh, I knew she was mine and I held her in my arms and all of a sudden we were spinning through time. And I was, you know, seeing and feeling and knowing all these experiences that I had had with her through the years. And then it, it stopped on a dime at, at her being 13. And now she was no longer in my arms. She was standing right in front of me as this, you know, beautiful adolescent girl. And that's when um, we had our, you know, the conversation at that point. Um, I was you know, I, I love her. I love these children. They're my children. They're, they're, you know, you can't take someone's children and not have it affect them. Of course. Even if, so I am so emotional looking into her beautiful eyes and, and I'm trying not to let her see the pain in my heart. I, you know, I, I didn't want her to know how much it hurt not having her with me. So I'm, I'm, trying to cloak my thoughts. I'm trying to keep from crying, but she was too telepathic. She totally locked on to my emotions and she said, oh my God, mom, what if the same thing happens to me when I grow up? What if I grow up and have children and they take my children from me? And I just looked at her. I was trying to be a good mom and, you know, say the right thing. And I'm like, um, you know, it, it won't be the same for you. It, your life will be different than mine. And, you know, they're not going to take your children. And even if they did, knowing you has been the greatest experience of my life. This is all telepathically, right? Yeah. And I know this must be very hard to discuss as a parent, not a mother, but a father. I can, I could relate somewhat. Where are they keeping her and for what purpose? I don't know. I don't know. You know, it was right after that that I realized they, they were destroying my female organs. I have been to so many doctors and had so many surgeries. And they say, oh, it's endometriosis. It's this. It's that. We fixed you. It'll never be, you know, never be in pain again. And, you know, my reproductive system was destroyed. So uh, I knew I had to make the abduction stop just to save my body. So it was right after that that I learned how to make them stop and I never saw her again. That was my next question. 
did you know that once you requested the abductions to be stopped, that you were going to stop seeing your daughter? I knew that. So this is how hard it was that you preferred to stop then having the opportunity to see her again. I didn't prefer it, but it was a matter of life and death. Mm. You said you have more than one? I do have more than one. Um, I've been shown, oh, I've been shown so many. Um, uh, the, the Aqua, they brought me They brought me into a room and they, they it was a, a round room with a door. I walked into a door and straight across the room was another door. And so the, these two little grays got me down on my knees and um, a, a hybrid nurse walked into the room with these two toddlers, like two and three years old. Um, and the, the, the little boy was not interested in me and the little girl was totally fascinated with me and walked straight up and looked me straight in the eyes and, and the grays were um, so proud. Oh my God, I felt all this emotion from them. And they said, isn't she a beautiful baby? And I looked at her and I'm like, yeah, she's beautiful. She was gorgeous but I couldn't relate to her. She was more alien to me than April. She had more alien DNA. And so um, I, they wanted me, they were waiting for me to like reach out and embrace her and love her. And I just, I, I couldn't do it. I, I just kind of sat there in shock once again. Um, but they've, you know, hand, like I said, they've handed me these babies and, and you know, the some have been lo- so frail that, I just knew that they weren't going to live. You know, others were very healthy. Um, I suspect just by, you know, with April and the two toddlers and a couple of babies that I was given that I, I, I may have, you know, five or six hybrid children. But um, April and Aqua, for sure, I know, are mine. I just think, you know, where's the maternal influence when a child is removed from their mother? In this case, your your, your children. What replaces that maternal influence into the children as they grow? Where are they kept? And the biggest question I have is, what is the purpose of an alien species creating a hybrid species? I can only come to one conclusion, Kim, and maybe you disagree with me. Could this be because they may plan something in the future and they're perfecting the race, if you will, because they probably cannot survive on planet Earth and they're trying to find a combination of genes or DNA in order to be able to 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 stay here on the planet and perhaps there's an ulterior motive. Have you ever thought about that? Of course, Mel. I think about it every day. <laughs> I've studied this. I've researched this. Every story I can find, every abduction story, you know, the conferences, the online, and you know, my life is trying to figure out all this stuff. And unfortunately, after all these years, I don't have the answer. Um, I'll go back to the first question about the children needing human bonding. Mm-hmm. That's why the the parents are brought back on board ship. They know that these human children need human bonding, love, emotion, physical contact. But only for a short period of time, right? They, they because, well, because they're, they're maybe half human or a quarter human. So, of course, they don't need the extent that our children need it mm-hmm. because they've got that, they're alien parent, parents right. and influence. Um, so, yeah, they, they know, they bring them here. Um, by, so, when you say an alien species, I have to tell you, Mel, I've seen, like I said, hundreds of, of 
babies and tanks that are range anywhere from, you know, uh, 5%, 10% human to, uh, you know, 90% alien and just the opposite and everything in between and all the different races combined. So they're not creating one hybrid species. They're creating many hybrid species, many, many, um, you know, just, I don't know, shades of gray between the two of us. That's not funny, but that's the way it looks. I understand what you mean. Yeah. So, uh, and I never got the impression that my daughter was going to come and live here. Although I know that a lot of abductees think that and that people have reported being abductees have, you know, been reported being taken to apartment buildings in the middle of the night and these hybrid young hybrid people are uh, in these apartments and they don't know how to shop for clothes or arrange furniture or, you know, go to a library and, and they are teaching them how to, you know, manipulate within our human environment. I've heard a lot of those stories, too many stories to negate them. Um, in my opinion, because I've I think I'm part of the lineage. You know, they say that abduction doesn't just happen to you. They don't just grab you off the street. It's typically... Multi-generation, yeah. Generational. So, and I know that there are aspects of my physical body and my consciousness that are not like a typical human being. So, I have to assume, or I do assume, that I have been manipulated and that probably my mom and probably somebody along the line. And this is just, I believe it's something that just goes on and they made may seed universe. Universes. Did you see the movie Knowing? Of course. Nicholas Cage? Sure. Uh, you know, so it could be it could be one of these scenarios. They could be replacing us because we are destroying the planet. They could be replaced because that's what they always told me. Yeah. They didn't say they were replacing us, but you know, you've got to take care of the planet. Every abduction. The number one thing was the planet. Um, so they could they could be replacing us. They because we're destroying the planet, they could be uh, trying to to move here because they can't sustain themselves. I don't believe that. I, I didn't get any of that from them. They look totally sust- sustainable in their way of life. Um, they, you know, the whole thing that they may be from a timeline where they weakened and now they're cut. They are future selves and they're coming back mm-hmm. to straighten something out that happened now, one of our disasters. Um, or this, this could just be what they do. They are geneticists and they create species. Let me ask you just, like we send probes to Mars, for example, a, a robotic probe. Could it be that these grays may be biodrones sent here by another race to do their bidding, and that's why they're so detached, cold, mechanical, clinical? Yeah, uh, not in my opinion. Um, most people believe that the little the little grays are. Uh, drones. Okay. And they, a lot of people believe the taller grays are not. In my experience, I don't think any of them are drones. When the little grays were excited to show me Aqua, my daughter, the toddler, their emotion was as strong as any being I've ever known. They were like little kids. Several times when the abductions weren't, uh, you know, traumatic, they were like little children. They were just full of joy and happiness and running around and, and you know, like a, a hive mind. Mm-hmm. But they had a little bit of individuality as well. Um, the experience that I didn't finish telling you about um, when I had asked them, you know, I've been putting out this projection. Please let me be conscious. Let me be conscious. Um, one night, um, 
all day I had been ill. I had, there, there was a fetus inside of me and it was, it was not taking, it was dying. It was fighting inside of me and I could feel it and I didn't know what to do. Um, I knew at that point, you know, by the time I got to a doctor, they would think I was insane or the grays would abduct me and it would be gone. So I felt, I stayed in bed all day this day. I felt the grays all around me. Couldn't see them physically, but they were, they were with me. They were monitoring, monitoring this fetus. And I kept saying, get it out of me, get it out of me. It's dying. Get it out of me. Finally, at the late into the night, I heard this telepathic message. You asked for it. You got it. You want to be conscious, here we come. And I, th- I think it was basically because they didn't have time to knock me out because they had to get this fetus out of me. Uh, and at that point, four gray aliens came through my glass, my sliding glass door of my closet. Um, two came up to my shoulders. Two went to my feet. The one that was on my left shoulder got really, really close. And I, I knew it was going to try to do, you know, maybe that, eye lock on thing that they do and I was resisting and I said don't you dare knock me out I said I deserve to be conscious after all I've gone through and so when he got real close to my face I I, you know almost cheek to cheek I took my left hand and I slid it between our our cheeks and I pressed against his face and my thumb slipped into his mouth at that point I felt a hard palate it was moist it was warm it felt just like the inside of my own mouth mm. and I and it triggered something it released this being's emotion and I was all of a sudden I was him I was we were one and I was feeling all this disgust and and like dirty and terrible and then I thought uh, who, whose thoughts are these whose feelings are these i don't recognize them as mine and it was like we both another moment went by and the next thing i'm enveloped in the most intense love i've ever felt in my life and he and i were bonded in this grip of love and he reached down and he kissed me on my cheek and then i went unconscious and later on, I was uh, uh, in what I thought was an underground base. And I've been taken to underground bases with, with the greys and, and um, humanoids and humans all working together oh, many hold on. times. I wanted, to, I wanted to ask you, do you think there was collusion? Did you ever see any military, some, somebody that may have looked like a military officer? Oh, many. Oh, tell me. Many, many, many. <laughs> uh, well, in this particular instance... Um, uh, uh, gosh, there, there's so much. L- l- let me get a shorter story here. Uh, okay, one time I was taken, I was taken to a mountain. Okay, it, it's in the middle of the night, and it's a mountainside. Looks kind of like Colorado, mm. and there are these trees, and it's like it reminded me of an entrance into Disneyland. They had like a little booth or one of those little you know bars that you have to go through to get in, into the door yeah. and there were a line of people there and i was off to the right and i just became conscious and i i you know i'm i'm standing up and i became conscious it's the weirdest thing but that's how it happens and i'm being pushed into this line into this room and i'm taken into this this huge auditorium this half circle auditorium and i'm at one of the very top rows so i can barely see or hear, hear the person on the stage 
And there was a woman who was a, a, a female humanoid. I believe she was human in uh, just a khaki military outfit standing next to me. And I've, I'm always belligerent. I never wanted to be abducted. And I, you know, I didn't like cooperating when they took me like that. So I would, when I become conscious, I'd start yelling and I'd complain and I'd be boisterous. And, you know, I said, why do you bring us here? And, and, you know, and she says, well, you know, because I couldn't hear the guy on the stage. And she says, you know, you're being prepared for something. I said, yes, I know I'm being prepared for something. What? What am I being prepared for? And then a woman behind me said, it was, saw how upset I was and was trying to make a joke. And she said, uh, she said to the you know military woman, you know, just tell her when she's uh, doing what she's being prepared to do, she'll make a lot of money at it. That'll quiet her down. So she was somewhat your handler, the military woman. Uh, apparently, because at that point she took me out of the room. And when I, upon stepping out of that auditorium that was filled with people, I became unconscious. And, you know, I, I've been looking at this for so many years and I, I don't know that they individually knock you out because that seems to me it would be, except for the first abduction when I started screaming, it would be a lot of work. I have a feeling that these rooms that you're taken to one from another are geared, you know, technologically to render the abductees unconscious when they walk into them. And so I walked into this room. I was unconscious. The next thing I know, I wake up. I'm strapped to a table. There are four grays with me, maybe the same four. I don't know. Um, But I'm being pushed down this hallway, this wide hallway that is filled with human military personnel, humanoids and gray aliens that were so numb to seeing abductees in my position, they didn't even look at me, even though the table was kind of like bumping them as we were going by. They would just kind of glance down at me like, oh, yeah, no big deal. Almost like another test lab rat. Yes. And I hate to be using these terms, but you know what what I'm saying. Sure. Yeah. In this auditorium, how many people would you say there were, and who were they? I don't know. A few hundred, maybe. Um, they were just, they were abductees. They were just like me, people who'd been nabbed out of their bed, and they were sitting there being prepared for this lecture, some kind of lecture. Lecture given by whom? There was a, a humanoid man on the stage. Do you remember what uh, he was saying? I, I don't remember. I couldn't hear what he was saying. I could barely see him. Uh, you know, I, I was, you know, had been unconscious, just coming in and out of consciousness. Um, but I, I do remember the woman most specifically. And I, and, you know, and it was all like an underground base. I mean, it, it had none of the qualities of a craft. Like I said, I've been on a lot of craft. They're round, they're white, they're seamless, they're stark. These rooms were hallways. They were human-engineered hallways. If you are saying that you saw military personnel, have you come to the conclusion that collusion exists and our own government is working with them? And if so, for what purpose? Absolutely, without a doubt. And I also believe that it's the opposite. I believe that, um, that in my experience, uh, I've, I know that there are ETs working hand-in-hand with uh, our military. I know that there are military and government agencies working against the ETs. So there, I believe all of the above exists. Just 
like abductions, some people say that it's a positive experience. Some people say it's a negative experience. It's the whole spectrum. And folks, we've mentioned our good friend uh, Yvonne Smith for a while during this interview. If you want to hear how horrific some of these abductions may be, go back and listen to the show I did with Yvonne. She was gracious enough to allow me to play a couple of those regressions. And you will be on the edge of your seat when you listen to what those people have to say. Some say it's a positive thing. Some people who are implanted don't want the implants to be removed because they think they're going to change if positive changes have occurred in their life. There are others who say they want those implants out. Do you have any implants? Do you have any scarring? Yeah, I do. I, I was implanted with a, a BB up my nose, and I've got an illustration of that in my book. I was implanted uh, in the back of my left calf. Um, it Another one of her clients, uh, if you will, um, had a piece removed from his body that looked exactly how the piece in the back of my left leg felt. It felt like a piece of pointed glass, and when I would push on it, it would hurt. And over the years, it got deeper and deeper, and it it actually eroded a huge piece out of the back of my left calf. My left calf does not look like my right calf now. And um, the guy, the, Yvonne's uh, client, said the same thing. He couldn't wear his socks when he was a little boy on because his was in the front of his left, I, mm. I believe it was his left leg. And if he had the tight little white socks, he had to roll them down because this implant was always irritated. So yeah, I've, I had implants and they are no longer in my body. Like I said, I learned how to make the abduction Oop, stop. Your microphone all of a sudden stopped. So, yeah, as far as uh, the regressions and the horrific parts of the abductions, they are as cruel as they can get. You know, I was part of a pain threshold program, and I was taken into this complex at one point. They allowed me to be conscious, and when I got – but they were guiding me, you know, go, go down this hallway. And when I got to the end of this hallway and I looked to the left, I saw this door, and I just – I, I just started screaming and crying because I knew that was, I called it the bad room. That's the room they would take me into and torture me, and I believe, until I died and they would bring me back. And so they do that. They do these things, and I don't know why. They're trying to understand human physiology because they're creating these hybrid species. They need to know what we can take. Uh, I don't know. Another another horrific experience. I'm going get to get through the horrific first, and then I'll go to the good ones. So hold that, um, hold that thought, because we have to take a one and only intermission. But I wanted to ask you, if there is the existence of the so-called non-intervention policy, if you will, why is it that they're not respecting free will? Well, they're not the only ones. Our government doesn't respect free will, our military, uh, all the other species besides the greys. Well, we know this about our government, but if these alien species, and maybe some species may respect free will, may, just like some people say, all alien species are bad. Some say they're all benign. I'm in the middle. Just like we have good people in this world, we have bad people in this world. Well, uh, can, I, can I interject? Sure. Uh, you know, we have people, and sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad. Yes. Most people aren't all good or all bad. In my experience, is the aliens are not all good or all bad. Shades of gray. 
Exactly. Right. We had you have to tell us a little bit more of Sedona UFO Sky Tours because, folks, I just I'm embarrassed to say that I've lived in Arizona now for over 13, 14, almost 15 years. And I just recently went to Sedona for the first time and absolutely loved it. And the skies there are unlike anywhere else. Now, you are in the perfect place for this venture that you now have. Tell us more about this new venture, uh, Sedona UFO Sky Tours, and then tell me about the new book, The Art of Close Encounters. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've been coming to Sedona for about 20 years. Um, through Sedona to Sedona, I bought land in Snowflake, Arizona, mm-hmm. where Travis Walton oh, yeah. lives. Well, why would and you be doing that? You're coming close to, to another epicenter of abduction. You know, I'm. We are drawn to this. Yeah. These energies, I suspect. Um, and this is a really interesting story because I got a call one day from a friend of mine who lived in Arizona. I was living in, you know, Southern Cal, yeah. and he said, "Have you been looking for land?" And I said, "I've been looking for land for years." And he said, "Well, I found some beautiful land in the high desert of Arizona." And he said, "They're forty-acre parcels." He said, "I talked the real estate agent into holding six parcels and convinced him I would." Have have them all sold in a week. And I said, wow, that sounds amazing. So this person is a contactee, mm-hmm. right? So I call a girlfriend of mine and I said, you know, have you been looking for land? She said, yeah. I said, you know, forget what you're doing tomorrow. We're going to Snowflake. It turns out that six contactees ended up buying 40-acre adjoining parcels. Wow. So, and it's checkerboarded with BML land. So, we actually have like five times that amount of land. And we put a fence around it and we all, no one's built there because we've always felt like it's going to be the place where the hybrid children are going to land. Maybe that's just our hopes and dreams. Mm. But um, the the roads had just been, you know, they're dirt roads and they hadn't been named yet. So the real estate agent said, here you go. You get to name your own roads. So we've got Zeta Reticuli Lane. <laughs> really? Orion Way. We've got Pleiades Place. It's so funny. That is great. Yeah. So, you know, so throughout the years, I'd go to my land. I'd come and stay in Arizona and go visit my land. And, of course, it's magical, amazing, wonderful. It's, a, you know, the vortexes, the, the beauty. As a photographer, there's no place more beautiful. Tell us more about this new venture, Sedona UFO Sky Tours. Okay. Sedona UFO Sky Tours is the most exciting business I've ever had, that's for sure. Um it's very fulfilling because people come here. I've noticed that most people who book tours, I'd say 80% of them, have had some kind of sighting or contact, and they really haven't had any kind of validation in their lives. And what they do is they come to me because, you know, being a bit of an expert and having the technology to see these things, you know, in space, um, they just... I've had people bring their family members just to prove to their family members that these things exist and to have someone with a little knowledge speak to their family. So um, it's really validating for people who've had an experience and for people who haven't seen a craft, it blows their minds. I mean, it is so much fun. So every time we go out, I I have so much gear now. Uh, last night I had, I had shipped to me new video gear so that we can start videotaping all of these amazing things we see in the sky. It's one thing to see it, but if you don't have it recorded, um, you know, it's just in your memory. Especially those people who come in who are skeptics, who have, who want to be able to share what they saw with their family members. Because if you, if you come and say, look, I saw three Delta Delta shaped craft, I saw a hundred light ships, 
but you can't prove it, the skeptic right. out there still won't believe you. Sure. So, you know, I, I'm building, I have three different types of night vision, uh, you know, goggles, binoculars, uh, a monocle. Now I've got the video gear um, and I've got it set up. I've got a place where we can be inside now and be warm and have someone outside manning the video gear and having it being projected onto a flat screen TV. So everybody can just, you know, cuddle around the TV and, and if they don't want to be outside, but being outside is pretty pretty okay if you're dressed for it here you know the the night sky uh sedona is called a dark sky city so there are no street lights in the neighborhoods any commercial building has to have a shield over their lights and that's why this uh this is the perfect place you've got the energy vortexes the ufo hotspots a pitch black sky you know and these beautiful vast arizona skies um it's just you know perfect conditions for seeing something and most people don't look up you know i can't tell you how many people come here and say i've looked up more tonight than i have in my lifetime and that's all it takes it takes a clear sky and looking up 50% of our sightings are not with the night vision gear they're with the naked eye and a lot of the things we're recording we're recording with camcorders you know just simple things. We, we recorded a, a couple of craft um, last week. One was this huge round disc uh, of light. It came and it hovered over uh, the Verde Valley. The bottom third of it was spinning and we have perfect uh, you know, footage of that. That's on my website. Um, and I'm going to be downloading and streaming all this, the, the new images onto my website, SedonaUFOSkyTours.com. And, um, you know, it's we're just going to get the information out there until they, until the military decides they've had enough. And of, of me, course, I guess. they we see black helicopters all the time in Sedona, and you know we yeah. there's there's no military base close by, so it makes you wonder what they have there. The area of Secret Canyon uh, is such a mysterious place. I need to get back there and, and bring a, a big group of people to 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 go with you, Sedona UFO Sky Tours. There's a website, SedonaUFOSkyTours.com. There's also a video that I've added to uh, Kim's page on our website that shows yeah. some testimonials of what they can they can see. Well, there are definitely military bases here. They're just underground. So, that being said, I listened to Tom Dongo. He spoke at MUFON mm -hmm. Sedona last month, and he was so adorable. You know, he's been here for decades and decades and written about eight books. Um, and, you know, he says, okay, I'm not talking about the underground tunnels that go from Area 51 to Jerome and the ones that are being extended from Jerome to the southeast because my life has been threatened four times now and the fourth time they kill you. He said, so once again, I'm not talking about <laughs> So obviously he's admitting it. I need to get in touch with Tom so he yeah. can talk to me a little bit more, hopefully not uh, yeah. making it the fourth uh, warning. Uh, also, tell me about the All book, right. The Art of Close Encounters. Where can people buy this book? Oh my goodness. My little, my, my heart chakra project of my life. It took me 15 years. Um, it is, uh, 150 individual stories of contact with phenomenal artwork and you have the book and, and I can vouch for that. I'm not bragging because the artwork is not mine. The person who had the experience submitted the artwork. Um, it's a hard copy, uh, thick, 
you know, beautiful black, rich pages. It's a beautiful Christmas gift. Right. <laughs> and it, uh, you know, it, I wanted it to be a visual encyclopedia to contact. Being a photographer and an artist, you know, we do what we do. And so um, I, I compiled this. The first chapter is uh, the most seen different species of aliens. The second chapter is the, the most seen uh, different types of craft. Then I go into uh, the abduction phenomena, dream encounters, uh, contact encounters, psychic encounters. Um, it, there's some beautiful illustrations in here that, you know, people, they don't remember having contact, but they're inspired to do this phenomenal artwork. So that's in the inspired uh, chapter. Extraordinary is a chapter that it's not exactly UFO ET, but it lends itself to that and uh, just incredible stories. One of my favorite images is from a guy in the UK and he has, this is an inspired piece, um, this gray alien on a perfect wave, you know, being from Malibu. I, it's just, it's so much fun. So there's some serious stuff. There's some lighthearted stuff, but it will definitely give anybody a, a great overview of Close Encounters. During segment two, I'd like to discuss a little bit of the of the book. In addition to the book touching so many areas, it includes beautiful depictions. It's great to read, but it's also a great piece for a coffee table, which is exactly what I have in my office. But folks, don't go anywhere. We have so much more to discuss with Kim Carlsberg. I'm Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We'll continue this interview with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the member section. Enjoy. Spaceman came traveling on his ship from afar. Twas light years of time since his mission did start. Over a village he halted his it hung in the sky like a star Just like a star He followed a light and came down to a shed Where a mother and child were lying there on a bed Bright light of silver shone round his head And he had the face of I come from a planet a long way from here And I bring a message for mankind to hear And suddenly the sweetest music filled the air And it went
Smith, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. 